Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that looks at a range of different ways we get around from cars, buses, trains and planes. I'm David Brown. And in this program, we have news stories, including Tesla outsells Audi for the first quarter, electric vehicles outsell diesel cars in Western Europe, we highlight Nissan's Prem car aftermarket development, Toyota demonstrates broad potential of fuel cell electric vehicle technology as part of a hydrogen showcase, and Mazda's CX-30 G25 Astina. And with listeners' feedback, fellow presenter Sharon Thompson helps me read out some interesting responses from some of our recent posts on social media and in our feature story. The New South Wales government is refurbishing the Grand Central Railway Station, which was opened in 1906. Overdrive went on a tour with railway historian Stuart Sharp to find some of the original politicking and happenstance that led to its design and character. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au or email us at feedback at drivenmedia.com.au or leave a message on our answering service 028003-4295. Country code Australia plus 61 if ringing from overseas. This program was originally broadcast on the 29th of April 2023 and we began with the news. In global sales for the first quarter of 2023, Tesla outsold German luxury manufacturer Audi. This was one of the conclusions from a report European electric car study conducted by Schmidt Automotive Research. Tesla had 422,875 customer deliveries, while Audi's first quarter customer deliveries were 415,700. Tesla has benefited from sharp first quarter price cuts and an improved production ramp up from its new facilities such as the European Brandenburg site in Germany, which reached a 5,000 weekly production rate at the end of March, according to the company. Sales of German manufactured premium price vehicles remain stable and they are unlikely to make short-term price cuts as a knee-jerk reaction thanks to strong orders on their books as well as protecting residual values and brand equity. To achieve further quick growth, Tesla may be moving towards more volume brand territory, such as Renault, Stellantis, which sell Chrysler and Alpha, and Volkswagen brands. Battery electric vehicles have surpassed diesel engine cars for the first time in new car sales in Western Europe, according to research by Schmidt Automotive Research. In December 2022, 20.4% of all new passenger car volumes in Western Europe were battery electric vehicles, with less than 19% being diesel, and that includes hybrid diesels. Diesels were once very popular in Western Europe, and Overdrive surprised many people by road testing and racing an Alfa Romeo 156 diesel sports wagon in Australia some years ago. But diesels peaked in Western Europe in 2011, with 55.5% of the market, and their subsequent downward trajectory was amplified in 2015 by the Dieselgate scandal. Petrol engine vehicles also benefited after the 2008 financial crisis and subsequent scrappage incentives. The top battery electric vehicle manufacturer was the VW Group, 
although Tesla was the best individual brand, as Volkswagen spreads their technology over a number of brands. The importance of EVs for manufacturers is shown by December results, with almost a third of Nissan sales and nearly one in four Porsche sales being battery electric vehicles. Australia once had a thriving and proud local automotive manufacturing industry. Over the years it has been destroyed by government ineptitude. However, in its place a buoyant secondary manufacturing and engineering industry has evolved. One such group is Premcar in Victoria, which evolved from Tickford Vehicle Engineering. Premka has a strong relationship with Nissan and produces their Warrior series of utes and soon four-wheel drives. They have just celebrated the 5,000th Warrior that has rolled off the assembly line. The Warrior is an enhanced model that has integrated improvements with Australian-designed and engineered components to suit Australian conditions. It started with the Entrek Warrior, then the Pro 4X Warrior, the SL Warrior, and soon the Patrol Warrior. The advantage of a relationship like this is local manufacturing and engineering knowledge combined with manufacturer warranty and backing. Having driven both the Pro 4X Warrior and SL Warrior, I can attest to the quality and practicality of the enhancements. Interested buyers can access any Nissan Warrior by Premcar through your local Nissan dealership. Toyota Australia is demonstrating hydrogen fuel cell technology as part of a national hydrogen showcase that will be touring around the country. Among the fuel cell vehicles on display is their Hiace-based FCV Express Diner concept. The rear of the Hiace has been fitted out as a mobile kitchen with five induction cooktops, an oven, rice cooker, fridge, freezer and three sinks with hot and cold water, all powered by the onboard fuel cell. Designed for use in a variety of situations from street stalls to disaster relief, the Express Diner has a driving range of approximately 400 kilometres. Toyota also has a Catano 33-seat commercial bus with electric motors powered by a fuel cell, which offers a driving range of approximately 450 kilometres. And there's a fuel cell forklift well-suited for logistics and warehouse operations. This is a production vehicle available for sale in Japan and is being trialled in Toyota Australia's parts warehouses in Melbourne and Sydney. And finally, a standalone generator, which is manufactured in France and sold in Australia through Blue Diamond. Last year, one was used to power the Marvel Stadium sign and a coach's box during an AFL match. I have just driven the stylish and comfortable Mazda CX-30. It is an ideal size urban SUV and comes in a range of models and engine options. The CX-30 is a good looking SUV that seems to get the proportions right. The model I drove was a G25 Astina in both front wheel and all wheel drive. The Astina comes packed with almost every luxury and comfort safety feature you could want. Inside it's typically Mazda quality and layout. Little luxuries like heated front leather seats and steering wheel, dual zone air conditioning with rear vents, multiple USB ports and the Vision Technology packs are included as standard. The G25 comes with a 2.5 litre four-cylinder petrol engine that has maximum power of 139 kilowatts and maximum torque of 252 Nm. It comes a six-speed sports automatic transmission. This combination is smooth and easy to drive around town on longer trips. It is also relatively economical as well. I would choose the all-wheel drive version for the extra grip in wet conditions. It's one of those cars that you slip into easily and just feels right. The Mazda CX-30 G25 Astina is priced from 47729 plus usual costs. And that has been the news. 
We put up some posts on social media about some of the issues we'd covered on this program, and we received some interesting responses that show that people have a wonderfully wide experience of the cars and transport that they get involved in and that we touch on in this program. They show some unexpected reasons why people loved or at least remembered their cars. Now, to help me go through some of those responses, I am joined by a fellow presenter, Sharon Thompson who used to have a car program, I think. Sharon, g'day, is that right? You had a car racing program? Uh, greetings, David. No, not so much a racing program. It was uh, devoted mainly to car clubs and their various activities. Yes, because you have a link uh, with Terry, who's president of the organisation that helps organise those things. Fantastic. These sorts of things then are right up that ballpark. Indeed. We put some post up. When Mercedes-Benz was ahead of the field, when I was young, a, a prominent person in the community had a Mercedes-Benz 280. I got to ride on it and won a ride in it on one occasion. Back then, they were known for their luxury and advanced features. Now, I met a guy who's patching up a mid-70s model. Many people loved Mercedes around that time. One person said that car started a tumultuous love affair with the brand. It was also a time when they were very distinctive in their design. Sharon, you've got a couple of feedbacks on people who really love the car. Mick wrote, I agree. There was a time when you knew a Merc was in your mirror. That grille and front end was unmistakable. Somewhere in the recent past, but they'd lost their identity, I think, as did Jaguar, and now they all look like Mazda or Toyota. <laughs> what a disappointment and a shame. And Andrew wrote, they were a lovely car. My dad had an older one as a work car back in the 80s. And even though it had done had a lot of work done on it, it was still a great drive. And Mitch said, my favourite generation of Mercedes. And Trevor said, the E stood for Einspiel, which is German language, which meant injected. So it was advanced technology at the time, fuel injection. Now, Pablo said, the W116, which is the model we had a picture of, was the last of the S-Class that were built to last. The W126 that followed had a lot of beam counter engineering to make them more biodegradable. Not quite <laughs> sure what that, that meant. but uh, uh, Now, people may have loved that, but they were not perfect, and perhaps this is part of the biodegradability. Finn said the big problem with these, like most other Mercedes, was that you didn't notice the rust in the floor until it was too late. Sharon, some other particular aspects of the car? Yeah, the interiors brought some interesting comments. Uh, Rodney said, I can still smell them. They had a distinctive smell. <laughs> Hugh said, geez, that interior has stood the test of time. Now, this is, he's looking at that uh, photograph that you took, David. Mm. I bet there's not many, if any, car seats that would look this good at the same age. And Finn said, very thick and sturdy soundproofing. And Neo said, not the fastest car on the road, but the V8 Burble is pure vintage muscle. The interior is bland compared to Jags, but leather seats are so durable, they tend to stretch but not tear or crack, even after 40 years. We'll come back to that comparison with Jags, but Tanya said, my mates nicknamed it, she had a 1992 uh, version, the Flying Lounge Room which was an incredible bit of an engineering when you consider what was available at the time, she said. She went on to say, I switched to Jaguars, and here's the point. 
The Mercedes-Benz cars are nice, but the interior of the Jaguars are something else. The Benz interior is the doctor's office. The Jaguar, the gentleman's club. <laughs> and some other areas, uh, Sharon? They had some interesting really complicated suspension. Trevor said, they were self-levelling suspension systems. My dad used to own a W123 280E. Uh, the E, as you mentioned, stood for Einspiel. Mm. Um, Donnie said, yeah, they have an air ride system, which is a pain in the ass to fix and maintain. Doesn't hold back. In fact, Pablo, we mentioned, but he added the pneumatic suspension was always problematic, most having been swapped out for standard coil spring suspension. I don't know that you'd go to that sort of level, but uh, he thinks so. And I mentioned Tanya, and she said in 1992, I bought a 73 350SE, it had uh, interesting history. It had been the first one bought to Australia and was the one on the Melbourne Motor Show turntable displaying the new 116 model. I spent quite a bit on it, mainly reconditioning the suspension, hydraulic self-levelling and various other items. Now, he, she said it had a receipt of sale in the books and cost $9,900 brand new. Now, I think if I've done the calculation right, that's about a, mm, $114,500 now in today's terms, uh -huh. which actually is probably pretty cheap for a Mercedes and going there. And finally, a few comments that perhaps sum it up. You mentioned Neo's comment about the V8 burble, which I think is rather nice, but it came with a cost. Tanya mentioned, I still have fond memories of the Benz, especially the 6.9, which is a huge V8, but she said it had insane fuel consumption, although incredibly engineering. Uh, but Neil added about the fuel consumption, you needed your own petrol station. Oh. And in terms of looking different, but not so much now. Now, Stuart, I think this picks up on the, the distinctiveness of the, what they were then, but maybe not now. Stuart said, there's a newish Merc SUV of sorts that parks at the local shops. And twice I've seen it and thought, that's a nice blue on that Kia. But Sharon, you have a final comment that sums it up? Yes. John uh, wrote, when I met one of Australia's richest men in his advanced years in the late 1980s, when his sons were making decisions for him, he complained that they bought him the latest Mercedes-Benz W126, which he said he didn't like. He wanted his older Mercedes-Benz, the 116 450SEL 6.9 V8. He wanted it back. And, you, you know, there'd be a lot of people who would be unsurprised by that remark, I think, David. You know what? I think it might be true of many new cars, not because they're bad, but because they're so complicated. Yes. Let's move, let's move on to another post. We're not quite so many comments this time. I haven't had it up that long. And that was about the new Mahindra. SUV. Now, last week we had a story about that. It is a new large SUV and they call it the Scorpio N. It, the Mahindra conglomerate, they say that they're the largest selling tractor company in the world, but they also build cars. Now, they've been in Australia since 2005 with their tractors and 2007 with their utes, but that was a real sort of rural approach. The SUV is very much broadening their market into urban areas, but it is an SUV, Sharon? Yes, well, of course, Alan wrote, yet another SUV. Evan wrote, I have to remind myself that I drive a car made by a company owned by Indians. 
He owns a Jaguar, by the way. Yeah, not everyone knows that. Tata took over Jaguar, but the person who ran Tata loved Jaguar, so it wasn't just some crass commercial activity. But talking about that, our mechanical engineering expert, Fred, he had a cousin that had a Mahindra many years ago, and he drove it around Fraser Island where people called him Mr. Curry. (laughs) Oh, dear. Now, we have posed that question as to whether the origin, the country of origin of the manufacturer has any great significance. Indian car companies did have, well, Indian cars some time ago didn't have great standards to them, but the government, as we reported in the news last week, has got very, very serious about that. And both in pollution and safety, they've done some great steps. And given the way that we're taken on to Chinese cars, and if you go back Japanese and then Korean cars, I think yes, yes, price might be the way to do it. Another post. I met a gentleman, Rev by title and by nature. He's a nice bloke, but he had two reasons to be called Rev. He was a minister of religion, but he also formerly an engineer in the motor industry, and his pride and joy is a Ford Falcon X6 Turbo. Do you remember those, Sharon? I do indeed, David, because my brother-in-law's brother had one, and uh, I remember him showing it to me with great pride, and, um, you know, I was quite impressed. Apropos of that, you know, there was also a post about it, David. Um, Stephen said they spent over $500 developing the BA, a lot of money back then. Well, it's a lot of money at any time, really, when you think about it. Mm. The Barra motor is fantastic. Yeah, it was a six-cylinder, wasn't it, when uh, Holden and Ford were all Detroit iron of V8s. It was a lovely balanced car, actually. By not having quite so heavy a car in the front, it made for a better balance and with a turbocharger on it. It was a portent of uh, things to come, given that you can now get a four-cylinder Mustang turbo. Indeed, yes. But again, that goes against some people's religious beliefs. (laughs) Sharon, lovely to talk to you, and I I appreciate your feedback and uh, your support. Thanks very much. You're welcome, David. Cheers. And that was Sharon Thompson, who has a passion for cars, not just for their mechanical characteristics, but also for the life and times they have in our community. If you want to search for our social media sites, Both our Facebook and Instagram have the same name, Cars Transport Culture. Type that in and get our little snippets of reflections and history on the motoring world. You're listening to Overdrive. In 1906, the New South Wales government opened its latest station at Central, the third and by far the grandest station complex on this site. Central is located approximately 2.4 kilometres south of the main passenger port of Circular Quay. The New South Wales government is currently completing some major renovation work to make the station more modern. The building has for a long time been a rather shabby place with the view that you only went there to get access to other transport to go somewhere else. The modern thinking is to make transport interchanges more diverse places, and there are some long-term proposals for the space over the railway lines at Central to be put to a variety of uses. But why is it there in the first place? Overdrive went on a tour with railway historian Stuart Sharp to understand some of the original politicking and happenstance that led to its design and character. When the station was opened, the commissioner at the time said, it's all very nice, Minister, 
but it's in the wrong spot because they wanted, from the 1870s, in town. Oh, you know, right. they firstly wanted to go to Circular Quay, so it make the uh, interface between sea and rail easy. Well, what they did, they had a compromise in the 1870s and they took the railway or expanded the railway into Darling Harbour. And that became the major freight. So Circular Quay then lost, a, 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 there was a lot of the argument it lost then. But Whitten designed the terminus in Hyde Park. Now, Premier Parks, he then got onto that and told the big lie that he wasn't going to stand for any parkland to be used for a railway purpose. But that wasn't his real reason. That was just a reason he decided, because he did not want to move this terminus from this to help his mates in retail. Anyway, the legislation got past the lower house to extend the, to the terminus into Pitt Street, but it never got through the upper house. And unfortunately, in 1880, uh, when they had the uh, Sydney Exhibition, International Exhibition on, they had the first tramway operated. And then that was the start of the tramway system. And Parks realised, beautiful, we're not going to build any more suburban railways. Stuart took us to the large exit on the western side of the station complex. If you note the east-west axis exit entry, much larger. Now, this was built at a time when there was retail here. Now, Henry Parks, right up until the time of his death, did not want the railway extended into the city because his political support and financial was the people running the major shopping facilities here on that side. So the major entrance, the widest entrance on the station is to focus the people to the shops, to the retail stores. Now, the reason why the east access is the smallest one is because that was where the carriage docks were. So only the elite people can bring their horse and carriage into the station. In the Grand Concourse near the stations for regional trains is a statue of John Whitten, 1819 to 1898, under the heading of the Father of New South Wales Railways. Whitten is a little-known public servant in Sydney, where we pay far more homage to John Bradfield, who, at a later date, laid out a plan for transport and oversaw the design and construction of the Sydney Harbour Bridge. So why is Whitten not honoured more? Well, this guy had more enemies. The difference between Bradfield and this man is Bradfield knew how to work with people and persuade people. The stories are that he would go to individual politicians and convince them it was their idea to do certain things, not his. Whereas this man was arrogant and this bloke rubbed everyone the wrong way. So when this bloke retired, they cut his pension back. You know, that's how much hurt he'd left in the politicians. What was Witten's title and what was one of his unusual strategies? Engineer-in-Chief Railway Construction. He had his own branch in Public Works Department. And this is the man that when he built a railway line, he would purposely incomplete the buildings at the terminus because on an incompletion and handing over the line to the commissioner, the completion of the building and all the works went on to the railway commissioner's budget. <laughs> so in the case of Albury, they, you know, they get there in 
1880, uh, they start work on the uh, present building, 1881, you know, and, and so they open the line and the building's not even there. You know, they have to have the ceremony in the good shed. He did have his supporters for a while. He had an ally in John Ray, the commissioner. When John Ray was found not to uh, be keeping a close eye on the finances, he got the boot. And the new bloke, Charlie Goodchap, didn't like Whitten, Whitten didn't like him. They divided about the safety of trains, to keep the trains apart safely. And there was a big accident in 1977 called the Emu Plains Cornfield Meet, where two trains in the section collided. Whitten was on the wrong side of innovation. So after 1877, he'd lost all his status, or a lot of his status. Before, he would be asked about waterworks, harborside fortifications, all sorts of engineering. After 1877, that all went away. He was off the A-list. Stuart then took us to some marble columns at the entry to the station on the western side. History happened here in 1916 when, in, during the war, as you may know, the majority of troops that served were from the rural areas. And here, these nicks here, this is where the encampment from Liverpool came into Sydney and made some trouble in all the hotels. They were drunk. And they rang up the coppers and the military police and they had a fight here. They brought machine guns here and several of the soldiers were shot here, right here. And it was this incident here, the riot at Central, forced the introduction of six o'clock closing in hotels. Right here. This, you get, yeah, yeah, the bullet, wrecking showing off the, oh, off the works here, you see it? Stuart has an extensive history in the heritage of railway buildings and is not pleased if the structures are adorned with unnecessary items. One of the other things the building has done is be a support for people's plaques. You know, Carl Scully, we used to call him the Minister for Plaques. You know, everywhere you'd go, he'd have a plaque. You go upstairs on the third floor, there's another plaque, Carl Scully. You know, he did this, this and this. It's like another Laurie Brereton who had his name all over roads. Yeah, yeah, all that sort of thing. So downstairs in this location is the base of the clock tower. And in 1901, there's a plaque there done by E.W.O. Sullivan. I don't know if you know about E.W.O. Sullivan. Greatest Minister of Public Works. He wrote that himself. Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> As you would. Just past the western entry on the outer walls of the building are two plaques to commemorate the opening in 1906. Here we got, at this stage, we've got the vice-regal representative has that plaque, governor. So here you have the plaque of the politicians because the governor wouldn't put his name on the same plaque oh, as a politician. But at least one person received recognition for a job well done. We went to the northern side of the building that is serviced by Eddie Avenue. On the other side of here is Eddie Avenue. Now, Commissioner Eddie came out here in 1887, uh, one of three commissioners from Scotland. Wonderful administrator, did great things there. But in 1897, on his way to Brisbane for a meeting of interstate commissioners, trips up on the platform, dies. Uh, get sick, dies. Uh, 1897, big funeral. And to commemorate the death, they decided to rename this street in this section from Rawson Street, which was a continuation there, to Eddie Avenue. Well, the Governor Rawson was absolutely crapped off when his street was given the name of a public servant. 
you know. What greater sin can you do except for that? Apart from the public access points, there's an elegant door with rich timber frames and elegant etched glass features inscribed with NSWGR. It's the Commissioner's Entrance. Not far from this are some drab metal doors for the office workers. NSWGR, see on the glass, etched on the glass? Well, what the engineers did, when anything that was going to be, have a public exposure would put the G in it, government, so it makes the politicians happy. But if it wasn't going public, they'd drop the G. So all the plans and all, I mean, New South Wales Railways, you know, yeah. So without the government in there, no one got to see it? Is that, the, is that part of it? It was a fabrication, a myth, that the government owned the railways. You know, the public servants says it's no, it's, it belongs to the public servants, it belongs to all the engineers, all the commissioners, right. all the train, it's their railway, it's not a government railway. Did anyone suggest it might be the people's railway? No, no that bit revolutionary, that sort of thing, you know, you know. And we were talking there to Stuart Sharp, railway historian, on site at the refurbished Central Railway Station in Sydney. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Sharon Thompson, Stuart Sharp, Rob Fraser, Bianca Fraser and Mark Wesley for their help with this program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or send us an email at feedback at drivenmedia.com.au or a phone message at 028003 4295. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.